1990s, a years that defined a lot of us, me especially. That was a year as I went into the service for the first time. But it's a lot different for Ted and Fred. Fred's career has progressed. He's now tracking and hunting terrorists across the world. And Ted, for the first time, here's the word spook. <laughs> Welcome to the show, guys. How are you doing? Good, good. Doing great, Jason. Thank you. Thanks for having hey, Ted, us. What's- yeah. Oh, I, I loved I love talking about this and we could do this series for the next 50 years. Talk about <laughs> other things, too, as well. But, Ted, you were saying, hey, you know what? My dad came home and he mentioned the word spook. Now, we know the Cold War is kind of uh, it's on the end state now with the 1990s and with the 80s being really big into it. But now your dad's talking about this stuff open with you. Let's go into mm-hmm. that. Yeah, he would uh, come out here to the West Coast pretty frequently uh, to visit. And at the time, I was getting into uh, to the entertainment business, so I was learning the ropes uh, from my my mentor, Tammy Shad, who was terrific in showing me how the business worked, both on the musical side and on the film side. And in the meantime, Dad would come and visit. I was so used to not asking about what he did that it was kind of cool for him to share a bit more when he would arrive out here and we'd have our lunches together. But he would use the term spook a lot, and he would say he's getting together with his uh, retired spooks and they would have these various topics of conversation, which, you know, I don't know the full array of it, but certainly based on the fellows he was hanging out with and, and a couple times I met a few, it was, it was very interesting stuff. What kind of background do you think these were these guys like DOD spooks or you think they were agency or you just were kind of like, huh? I think they were, they were high level in the sense that it's the operations they were referring to were a lot of them I've never heard of. But I think they were interdisciplinary, if you will, like they were from different different walks of the service, for example, but with the common goal of of uh, doing the Lord's work, as I used to call it. So uh, he would talk about the the retired spies and then he would uh, there was a couple that he would refer to as spy conventions. I'm not sure what that involved, uh, but I also know at the time he was the president of the NMIA, NMIA so I heard that term. And, uh, it, again, as you said, it's the first time I heard the word spook. So I wasn't familiar with that until, uh, until the nineties. Now, did you start thinking about it? Like, Hey, you know what? Maybe I should look into what my dad's doing. He seems a little more mysterious. I mean, especially with the eighties and and everything else. Well, and the less he said about it, the more I became curious. And I do remember distinctly at one point when I was visiting them in Virginia and I forget what the topic of our conversation was, but it went down a certain path. And based on my response, he implied I think you'd be really good at what I did. And I said, well, tell me what it is you did. Ah, I'll I'll tell you someday. So he would drop these little kind of like breadcrumbs of information, which would then lead to me just doing a bit of of more digging. But we didn't have, and even in the 90s, the the range of information that you have access to based on tangentially knowing a few topics, that didn't quite exist back then. So it all had to go by talking to my relatives, talking to cousins. Uh, My uncle, of course, who flew the SR-71 Blackbird, so there was a few people within the family that would only share tidbits, though, again, because you're so used to growing up not being able to ask the details. So I actually had to get used to asking for the details, which became an interesting, interesting point of discussion. It's not like you could run down to the library and say, hey, uh, my dad mentioned this and I'm going to look it up. And then also there was no Internet. 
like we have today. It would be like, hey, anybody got an Encyclopedia Britannica I could take a look at? <laughs> exactly. Because that really, the searchable sort of internet space didn't really start until like the latter to mid-90s. So that was just the very early like Netscape and that kind of thing. So yeah, there was no handy database. It all became, which relative can I hit up for which information? <laughs> exactly. Now, Fred, your career is kind of taken off now. You're you're in the game for a little while and you're like, huh, I'm going to start really looking into things here and there. How, what was your your 90s career like? Especially with, like, you had to have had a shift in dynamic with the, the NCAA to the Cold War and a lot more of the Middle, C-sec, Middle East activity going on. Yeah, Jason, it was a bit of a blur. I know we were chatting a little bit offline about uh, my memoir, Ghosts, that uh, Ted just finished. And, you know, the 90s were really shaped by, in retrospect, as I look back, uh, you know, the first World Trade Center bombing attack in 1993. And, you know, from there, uh, the world kind of caught fire with uh, domestic acts of terror that had these tentacles overseas. And and we were a little bit better at tracking suspects and trying to identify individuals. And, of course, the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces started to come online, you know, the big one in New York and the one in Washington. And we had agents assigned to each one of them. And then in the mid uh, '90s, uh, we were very fortunate. Uh, and you know, look, uh, I've gotten way too much credit that I deserve for this, uh, for the capture of Ramsey Yosef, the uh, the mastermind of the first World Trade Center bombing. And you know how it is, Jason, in this business. Sometimes you just get lucky. Uh, the Rewards for Justice program, which my office ran, was instrumental for Ramsey Yosef's capture. And we were doing a lot of work with that program and getting a lot of requests from the interagencies on rewards and vetting informants and so forth. But in the midst of this, too, of course, I'm um, plodding along with uh, the murder of Colonel Joe Alon from 1973. It was, again, one of those files on my desk uh, that that never went back into the Mosler safe. You know, it was always on my desk in some capacity. So. It's really a blur. We were doing a tremendous amount of protection in those days, too. We had the visits of the British royals like Princess Diana to the United States and Prince Charles. And we also had uh, Yasser Arafat coming uh, in and out and and a lot of high-level Israeli delegations from Rabin to Perez to Sharon and so forth. So it was extraordinarily busy during the 90s for a range of different uh, reasons. And one of the more interesting protective details that we worked on was uh, when Salman Rushdie came and Rushdie hmm. had written satanic verses and was scheduled to go to the White House on a freedom of speech issue with uh, President Clinton. And uh, we had him in a safe house uh, in uh, northwest Washington. And that was kind of an interesting detail. Uh, a lot of threats surfaced during that time frame. And of course, he had the Iranian fatwa on him. So, you know, we were still dealing with the same players, Jason and Ted. You know, uh, all roads kept leading back to like Iran in many ways and the radical Palestinian groups and so forth. A big footprint, a big foothold into our culture, you know, when it comes to counterterrorism has been the Middle East and has been those same actors, Iran, the PLO, the Palestinians. I mean, it's, it's a very touchy subject for some but i don't it's it was very cut and dry who was pulling the 
pulling the uh, the strings over the past, you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It kind of blurred a little bit later on. But, you know, when we go back to the 1990s, you must have been like, huh, it's really starting to come into a clearer picture with who killed Joseph Alon. Yeah, it really was uh, for me, Jason. I mean, I started to, you know, look at it from an analytical perspective, like any good detective. I'm not saying I was good at what I did. I, uh, but um, I just started talking. Oh, why? Thank you, Ted. Uh, I I was just starting to kind of like time out incidents. You know, we, I knew that uh, the Israelis had one of their Mossad officers uh, killed in uh, Belgium and a similar attack like Colonel Alon had died. And then another uh, Israeli intelligence officer had been uh, shot and killed in Europe in a similar vein. And then I just started piecing together those puzzles. So, you know, for the sake of your listeners and viewers, you know, to Ted's point in the 90s, we were not much better off in the U.S. government with a database on these old incidents that had happened. So I literally was spending time uh, at uh, the library uh, drawing books out, looking at uh, old news clippings on how these incidents occurred and just started sequencing out the timeline. And, you know, one of the things that just really uh, was a was a flashing red light in my mind was uh, when the uh, Israelis assassinated uh, Mohammed uh, Boudea, who was the head of Black September operations in Paris, uh, if memory serves me right, he was assassinated on June 28th, uh, 1973. And, um, you know, July 1st into the 2nd, 1973, Colonel Alon was assassinated. Then on July 5th, 1973, we have the claim of responsibility that uh, Colonel Alon was murdered due to the Israeli assassination of this terrorist leader, ops commander in Paris. So things were starting to connect in my mind regarding motive. Uh, so uh, it was always something that I was working on as time permitted throughout the other chaos that was going on in the 90s. The utter chaos. We know that. And, you know, that's <laughs> oh, I should there. add, so just uh, on, on dad's background, that uh, I found out recently he was in a, a think tank uh, consulting with Tom Clancy. And so he spent a lot of the 90s working with Tom on lending that layer of authenticity to the various uh, projects and stories that uh, that he was involved in. So I only found that out recently. That was fascinating to hear. Now, how'd you find that out, Tend? Well, a cousin was telling me. In fact, it, it's my cousin whose dad flew the SR-71s. And we were chatting uh, just over the holidays. And he said, oh, yeah, by the way, I should mention that... Uh, that your dad was working with Tom Clancy. I'm like, okay, so all these years later, I finally hear this. And uh, what's interesting is as I was progressing uh, on the film side and learning how the, the methodology and the beats and how to make uh, that authenticity, that through line resonate in the story, it's interesting that my dad actually had done this in a very real way with one of the preeminent authors in this space, which I think lent that gravitas and authenticity to that work as well, to where you would see it and get that sense that you're almost getting a bit of inside baseball. Do you think your dad had that stuff in his journal in the 1990s? Was he still journaling? That's a good question because of the journals that I've seen, they're typically from the earlier periods and they're also somewhat cryptic, I guess is the best way to put it. So you almost have to decode to a degree and understand the context in which the notes were taken and, and how they relate to each other. So 
that's been something that Fred's been very, very good about helping me with too, as we piece through these. And it's funny because speaking of the journals, you may look at that same page several times over and on the fifth time over, wow, I didn't notice this detail here, which then ties to the page that comes two pages later. And so these are the types of things that I'm gradually putting the pieces together on. And I, I believe I've got some more journals on the way that should be arriving any day, which we can continue to go through. You know, Jason, the, and I want to, Ted made me think of something that you know from your business uh, and investigations is really fascinating to me. You know, here Ted uh, gets access to these journals and he starts looking at them. And not only is Colonel Alon's name and phone number in the journal, but so is Colonel Alon's wife's name in the journal, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, for the life of me, I can't still figure out. And uh, I think about that all the time. Ted and I have talked about that uh, ad nauseum. Hmm. And um, so it's just fascinating to me because you and I both know in various government meetings, you know, you're going to take notes or you're going to have, but you very rarely are going to say, well, um, you know, Bob's wife is so-and-so and and record that in a journal of any kind. So, you know, that's one of those kinds of missing pieces that we just don't have a good answer for. Yeah, that is pretty interesting to actually annotate someone's wife and wonder if, how do they fit into this puzzle? Well, it also could be too that as as he had met Joe, he didn't want to forget his wife's name. So again, when they're when they're hanging out and they would have drinks together and this sort of thing, it's the it's the that acquaintance that you want to start building, and that could have been at the very sort of towards the beginning of that that he was making these notes, or it could be someone sitting next to him in a meeting. What was his wife's name again? And he's you know jots it down as as someone else is talking, perhaps because it was very clear clearly written, as Fred said, with the number as well. It would be really cool to check out, you know, going back to the Tom Clancy aspect, is to check back with whoever the agency he was working with at the time, the one he was consulting with, and see if they have like meeting notes and, and stuff like that to see what he was mm-hmm. consulting on. Kind of bigger, build a picture about your dad post Intel community days. That's, really a, great, that's a great suggestion. Yeah, and here's a question for, for you, uh, Jason and Fred, is typically – from my understanding, and you see this in the film business, even without this level of, of, uh, of government association, if you will, that there's always a, a trail of NDAs. And once these NDAs are in place, no one can ever speak about what they did. I, I had to sign some of those same things when I was a ghost player in the music industry. So I would come in a recording studio between midnight and six, and I would fix tracks for people that had records on the charts. And of course, you don't want that to get out. So there's that whole chain of title issue. And I'm wondering... To Jason's point, it would be great to see if there were a way to maybe track some of that down. But I, I, I just wonder if it's possible, given the nature of that, uh, the secrecy involved there. It doesn't hurt to pull the string. Nah. Well, maybe it does. You know, this might turn into <laughs> another type of a spy, spy versus spy. Well, it's funny. Yeah. that One other thing my father mentioned, another term, and maybe you gentlemen would know this. Uh, he mentioned something called the backwards book, a.k.a. the Haynes Directory. And this would be something to where if you had a phone number and you want to track down who owned it, there's this uh, repertoire of numbers that you could go through and, and discern the names from. I never saw one in person, but he did refer to that. Oh, yeah, that was uh, part of the uh, gumshoe uh, detective uh, spy world big time in my day. You know, your Polaroid camera, your three by five index mm-hmm. card and a, and a Haynes directory. So you could. Okay. You could look up a uh, phone number and an address and so forth. So uh, it was um, envisioned like a your old-fashioned telephone book, right? 
where you could go and uh, figure those kinds of things out. And, and, you know, the other pivotal thing here, Jason, which I've always found interesting, just having lived in the protection world as well, is that Colonel Alon's murder in 1973 <clears throat> in my hometown changed how the Israelis forever protect their diplomats overseas. Meaning during that time period, most of the Israeli diplomats and many other uh, resident foreign officials lived out on the local economy. There wasn't a lot of protection at all. Yeah, I think you had the Secret Service Executive Security Branch during those days. And maybe the Montgomery County Police uh, in Maryland had Alon's residence listed somewhere. I doubt it, but it's possible as a diplomat living here. And so once Colonel Alon was murdered, the Israelis immediately started looking at, I, we got to do a better job of protecting our diplomats overseas. So much like all the tragedies that have uh, we felt here in the United States with the bombings of embassies and the hijackings and so forth, the Israelis did a big course correction uh, after Colonel Alon's murder. And that tragedy forced a lot of change which uh, sometimes it takes this kind of tragedy for these things to happen, as we all know in, in life. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I guarantee a lot of standard operating procedures changed for us as well. Posts, you know, embassy attacks. We know that with DSS. DSS, their manpower expanded tracefold. Now, Ted, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's crazy how it became in like a real protection, you know, get out of the, the counterterrorism business as much as we got to protect our dignitaries. And especially as you're saying about these different, you know, locations where you're housing people who might be under threat, you almost wonder nowadays if we would do that same type of thing is like, hey, you know what? There's a lot going on in the Middle East right now. We might want to bottle them up and put them in this neighborhood or this neighborhood, like vetted areas. Well, I know my father, speaking of the Middle East, traveled frequently to Morocco and also frequently to Iran. And I know he had worked with the Shah of Iran at one point and uh, was involved in some in some fashion in that hostage crisis, too. So I don't know all the details of that, but uh, there's certainly that was a big part of his travels. And he would typically, without warning, just have to leave all of a sudden and we wouldn't know when he'd be back. So it was very much the M.O. I, I tell you, hearing about your dad and hearing about you, like both of you taking a look at these journals. I want to read this book. I want to read a book about your dad and his exploits from the 1960s on up until his passing, because it sounds like an amazing man. Well, you know, thanks to my association with Fred and then through these discussions with people like you, Jason, it's actually shedding a lot of light because without that, uh, without that additional, you know, everything takes a team, right? And even the journals, the first time I saw those, there was some degree of understanding, but not much at all. And now, thankfully, through the discussions with Fred and through exploring how these things relate, it's actually helping to put that picture together. So to your point, there's been a tremendous amount of ground gained in the last, I want to say, 18 months or so since Fred and I have been collaborating. So that whole part has been really fantastic. I have a much clearer picture now than I ever would have had had I not looked into this based on his request. So the whole thing is a very, it's a very cool development, put it lightly. Now, when do we start seeing like a clear picture about who did what to Colonel Alon? Is that the nineties? Are we are we talking? Yeah, about, for know. for me, Jason, it it really started to come together in the late nineties, and um, 
I didn't really start going back to this case until I actually left the government. Um, I'm not so sure I could have done um, the job that I did while I was in the government in retrospect. Uh, leaving the government gave me the time to be able to do that, to focus. Um, you could not focus in the 90s or in the 80s when I first started because uh, we were just like international smoke jumpers, right? We would just hop from city to city to plane crash to plane crash and, and so forth and write a report and go home. And that was constant. So the mid-2000s is really when it started to come together f for me. And when I collaborated with uh, uh, Detective Ed Golian from the Cold Case Squad with Montgomery yeah. County Police, he and I uh, kind of figured out we, if the two of us didn't do something, nobody else ever would. So that's when we really started hitting it heavy. And on about 2005, we really started to, to devote a lot of time and resources into that. And, um, and here we are today. And, you know, through the good graces of publicity and, you know, a son following, uh, his dad's dying wish, uh, we're optimistic that the more notoriety surrounding this case is going to bring more leads coming forward or someone may know something that they have yet say. For example, I was just going back through the case this morning, Ted, and uh, <laughs> I found that, again, that, that Colonel Alon had made several trips to Los Angeles and uh, we never really know why uh, there's references in his diary to South Africa, and we all know the controversy surrounding Israel's nuclear development program, too. So, you know, who was Joe Alon, right? I know he was a hero of the Israeli Air Force. I know his family was wiped out in the Holocaust. I know that he fled Czechoslovakia to go to this fledgling country called Israel. But I don't know much about the man doing his job at the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. on the night that he was killed. But I'm learning more and more through associations like TED and what TED brings to that table with um, his father's journals and memories and stories. You know, it's like the cast of characters from the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and everybody we're talking about, it just, it really blows my mind because I think I mentioned on one of the other episodes, when I was a kid, all I would ever do was like, I'd read a ton of fiction and then I would also, I'd be so obsessed with counterterrorism. So anywhere I went, I would, I would, any library, anything I would do is I would read everything I could about counterterrorism and different terrorist organizations counter i'm not saying i wanted to be a terrorist <laughs> and then i would i would read all the army alert books and all that other stuff but yeah this uh i, I as we pull the the strings around this and everything it's it's turned more into not a look at joseph alon but at this cast of characters and especially ted's dad and 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 your relationship to this as working counterterrorism fred and as ted is working in the 80s and 90s I do want to have a complete show with Ted talking about his rocking career because we haven't even gone into that. I mean, Ted's in like this whole community of rock stars and it's just amazing. But as we delve deeper into this and have the audience hear more about Ted and hear more about your career, 
it's going to be interesting. And I, I really enjoy you guys coming on and talking about this and giving a, a little snapshot. This is more of a conversation than it is like a true crime type documentary. No, thank you for, for having us uh, as, as the show progresses here. And it's interesting that with each sort of new layer that we peel back, those breadcrumbs lead to an even deeper dive into certain aspects that we maybe wouldn't have necessarily thought of consciously until we bring them up in this environment. So this collaborative effort is certainly uh, ex- extremely rewarding. I mean, I love it. And Jason, uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity and the uh, your very loud platform here and mm-hmm. audience to be able to spread the word. And we would certainly welcome any thoughts or information pertaining to this time period or Colonel Alon. And I've actually jotted down a note about uh, Tom Clancy's think tank now, and I appreciate that. We might have to deputize you, you to assist us in this endeavor. 20, 22 years in this law enforcement game, guys. <laughs> and I'm 330 something days from retirement. Um, one other thing, too, is you might want to say, hey, Ted, my name is Ted. Uh, mm-hmm. Dear agency official, I would like all information pertaining to my dad, such and such, from these periods, blah, blah, blah. Might, you never know what's going to pull if you start doing a little Freedom of Information Act. That's true. That's true. And, and Fred and I have done a couple of these over the last year. And I think that there are I'm sure he has. There are some more angles we can look into. And then as a question for the room, is this worth doing repeatedly as things become declassified, i.e. if you submit one and there are certain things that aren't declassified yet when they do become declassified? My guess is you want to request them again because they're not going to voluntarily just keep sending you things as they're available. So maybe periodically, uh, Fred, we should look at doing these just to kind of keep poking a bit and see what we can find, because even some of the documents we've gotten were still heavily redacted. And I know there are ways we can try to uncover more of that, but let's, let's keep that dialogue going. That's a very good point. Very much. Gentlemen, so. I'm really looking forward to our next interview our next discussion, I should call it. And anybody out there who's listening, feel free to chime in, drop a comment here and there and, and kind of say, Hey, you know what? I, I think this is turning into more of a discovery of who Ted's dad was. And this big investigation, because, you know, one thing I know about Fred is when he pulls a string, he doesn't stop. So (laughs) this is going to go on for a while. And anybody, if you have not been following Ted and Fred on social media, and really, if you haven't read Fred's books, please do. I'll drop some links below. But gentlemen, I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks.